If you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to the book of Exodus. And then also find and and put a marker in there somewhere around Hebrews chapter 11, which is at the end of the Bible. So Exodus, second book, Hebrews near the end. And then also, if you can, find Acts 7. We're going to be in all of those. Primarily in Exodus is the easiest one to find, so you're good to go. Just get to Exodus. But right now, there's not a whole lot of movies that are coming out at the, at the movie theater, and I love to watch movies. You guys know that. But there's not a whole lot of movies that are coming out right now, but before they kind of shut that down, there had become a trend in a lot of movies over the last, I don't know, five years, where they're telling like the backstory. So it's origin stories. <clears throat> so like with Star Wars, you had Solo, and you had Rogue One, and on, there's coming an Obi-Wan series on Disney+. Plus With Marvel, you had, you know, uh, Captain America, and Thor, and, and Iron Man, and even right now, we're still waiting for Black, Black Widow to come out. They're supposed to come out last May, but they, you know, are holding it. We'll get her backstory. And DC Comics, Aquaman, we got all those things. Netflix, Laura, Cobra Kai, background of all the Karate Kid folks. And then even there's rumors that they're even like thinking about launching a, an origin story, a backstory on Willy Wonka and the Oompa Loompas. So like all these backstories, and we love these backstories because it helps us understand characters and like where they come from and why and how they become the people that they become, like how that happens, what all goes into them becoming that person that, that you know, we, we know and love. This morning, Exodus 2 is very much that for Moses. It is his origin story. We see his background, where he comes from, and all the things that go into making him who it is that he becomes, that we sometimes kind of view as like a superhero of the Bible. We get to see where he comes and what all went, like, took place to make him into that, this one who God would use to deliver his people out of Moses. And so we're going to get to see that this morning, but just as we saw last week in chapter 1, this chapter is just laced with God's providence. Just His working behind the scenes in silent sovereignty. I mean, we're going to look at 22 verses this morning in chapter 2. And not one time is God mentioned, but His fingerprints are everywhere. And folks, just let that be an encouragement, even before we get into the sermon today, in your own lives. Sometimes you may wonder where he is and you can't see it in the moment, but his fingerprints are right there. And so just wrap that as a warm blanket around you. Even when you don't see, you don't understand, that does not mean that God's sovereignty and goodness has ceased in your life. You just don't see it yet because we're limited. And so we're going to you know, see this this morning. And it's a chapter like on Moses' origins, but it's just laced with all of this providence. But in addition to that, we're going to see two specific magnificent aspects of God's providential work. And I'll go ahead and give them to you right now out the gate so that there's kind of like, you know, hooks to hang meat on as we make our way through the sermon. And so number one, if you're taking notes, it's going to be this. We're going to see and learn about how God bends history through the actions of ordinary people. God bends history through the actions of ordinary people. We're going to see that in verses 1 through 10. And then we're going to also see how God bends his leaders through the school of hard knocks. God bends his leaders through the school of hard knocks. That'll be verses 11 through 22. And so let's just jump into it, trace Moses' origins, look at these two truths. And so just context, remember where we're at if you were here last week. 
Pharaoh is psycho. The Egyptians view the Hebrews as subhuman. They are a problem, just very much Nazi Germany. What is the final answer to our Jewish problem? And so genocide is happening. Kill all the baby boys. Kill them all. That's context. Throw them into the Nile River. And it's a law that must be pretty fresh. That edict that came out in verse 22 must be pretty fresh because Moses has an older brother, Aaron, who's three years older than him, and he seems set safe. So probably pretty fresh by the time we get to verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, that's papyrus, and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river. And so, get the picture in mind. They're hiding him, right? And, and he's a fine child, which is a, a weird word that seems to... It's only used... This is the only place it's used in the entire Bible. seems to kind of call out there's something special about, about this child. But then again, every mom thinks that there's something special about their child. We all think that they're a fine child. And so, you know, they're, they're hiding him for three months. And you can kind of imagine that, like three months hiding the baby because, you know, if the baby starts to cry, then you, you, you nurse him to, to shut him up, get him, you know, milk drunk, get her milk drunk and fall asleep and stay quiet for maybe three months. <clears throat> but if you had a, a child or been around a child, something takes place around three months where the, the cry kind of goes from being, I mean, Noah and Kristen, you're, you're, you're in the midst, or about to be in the midst, where the cry goes from being kind of, kind of a cute, you know, goo-goo-gaga to like Sasquatch. <laughs> like, it just becomes horrible. And so, you know, what are they going to do? Because if they're busted with a child, I mean, if the Egyptians here, they're just going to grab the child, throw it into the Nile. And so what are they going to do? I mean, there would be no hope if they're just busted. And so, in faith, as John just read out of Hebrews chapter 11, they build a miniature-sized ark for him. You already know there's a basket. In Hebrew, it's ark. The word Noah's ark and the word basket, same Hebrew word. Very much a, a connection of salvation. Both Noah and Moses are saved you know, they pass through the deadly waters in the ark of God, a vessel of salvation, very much connected. So they put him in this tiny little ark and they pray like crazy. Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done for him, done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. 
So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so as I was reading this again this week, I couldn't help but wonder, like, did they not, like, concoct a plan here? Did they not put something together here? Did they not, you know, plan this out? We'll stick him in a little ark in the, in the reeds, right when we know Pharaoh's daughter's going to come down, and maybe she'll see him. And Miriam, your job is to hide out and kind of watch and see what's going on. Keep an eye on things. And if things go the way we hope that they're going to go, then you're to walk up to Pharaoh's daughter and, and say, hey, you need a nurse. And then come get me. Seems like there's a plan. And I, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It could it, I mean, certainly could have just happened. God moves in mysterious ways. His, you know, His providence is miraculous. And so it could have just happened, but He works through individuals. Or maybe it's an, an inner, in between. It's just kind of, they're doing this. So we don't know what we're going to do. We trust the Lord with this. And then His sister comes up with the plan. Ooh, ooh, ah, and just does it. You need a nurse? But the Bible doesn't tell us whether it just happened or they huddled as a family and came up with this. But either way it happened, there is great faith evidenced here. Like, it seems that they are fully confident something good is going to work out. Because otherwise, Jochebed, that's Moses' mom, we'll get her name in a couple of chapters, there's no way she would have sent her daughter to go watch if she really expects that the child's going to be murdered or eaten by a crocodile. There seems to be confidence that something is going to work out here. Great faith. Hebrews 11, we read about it. By faith they did these things. And so in the providence of God, everything works out. And of course it did. This is God's plan. It always works out. His plans always work out. But they didn't know it was His plan at the time. They are acting in faith. And so you can just imagine the immediate rejoicing that happens when Miriam comes running home. Mom, Dad, it worked. Or comes running home. Mom, Dad, you better get me a big Christmas present because guess what? I got the baby back. One of the two, like there's rejoicing. We're going to get to raise this child. Nurse. And at that time, they would nurse for like three to four years. So we're going to get to have the child, pour into the child, teach the child the covenant love of God. But pretty soon as that rejoicing is going on, Yaakov probably thinks, but that means I have to go through this all over again in a few years. And so I want you to see two things here. I want you to see the, the hand of God, the providential hand of God, where he is enabling and making it happen so that Moses is raised in his mom and dad's home and from you know, the first three or four years, formative years, early childhood learning, so formative. In those early years, they get to pour into him the love and the grace and the promises of God. So see the providence of God in that, but then also don't miss the sorrow of verse 10. Handing him over again. But dear friends, hear me well for just a minute. Those of you who are parents, want to be parents, were parents, grandparents, Sometimes, sometimes 
handing over our child, particularly to God, is the bravest, most courageous thing you can do. God loves that child more than you do anyhow. And entrusting him to, or her to his care is one of the bravest things you can do. And we do that as parents in a million different ways. First day of kindergarten. Trust, Lord, take care of that child as she's in there. The first day for us that we let our kids ride from our house to Sonic on their bikes, which meant crossing Rocky Fork Road. Right? But entrusting. The first time, we haven't had this one yet, that you hand the keys and they drive off. They're a few months away from it. And then a day where you pack them up for college and you, you act like you're happy and about it for them and this is a great thing and then they drive off and you go to the bathroom and cry your eyes out. And I'm not even there yet. I'm two years away. But parents, that's our call. Our call is to launch our kids into God's... Pro- like, they are arrows. Arrows aren't to stay in the quiver. They're to be drawn and long. You've got to let them go and you've got to let them fly and then beg God to, for that flight. That's our call. But friends, what I really want us to see in the midst of all these details is just number one in your notes. How God bends history through the actions of ordinary people. Particularly here, these three ladies. Three ordinary ladies of different ages, different nationalities, different social standing. They all did their part in God's great plan of redemption, though none of them knew or realized what they were doing. They didn't know this was all of that. They were just doing their job. And that's our calling. We don't know what God's going to do. Just do our job. Do our part. And one of these ladies isn't even like, you know, one of God's people. Yet she still played a part. This is the providence of God, bending history through the actions of ordinary people. And so let's just kind of walk through these three ladies real quick. The first ordinary person that we meet is uh, Jochebed, Moses' mom. And really, ordinary isn't the word we should ever use for a mom. Moms are extraordinary. They work and they give and they give and they give and they give and they work themselves to the bone and sacrifice great pain to themselves, doing everything they can for their kids. Moms are extraordinary. We need to make sure that we tell them that and thank them more than just on Mother's Day. So moms, thank you. But Moses' mom here was used by God just by loving her son. That's what she did. She sacrificed for his best, even if it was painful to herself, which it was. And in the three or four years she had with him, she poured into him the covenant love of God. Gave him that foundation. And so moms, never minimize your job. The poet William Ross Wallace is right. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. The greatest way we can change the world is bit by bit as you have your children and you raise them to love Jesus and live for Jesus. 
The second ordinary person that we meet in this story is Moses' sister. And we're going to assume she's Miriam here. That's a name we'll meet in a couple of chapters. Could have been another sister, but I, I think it was Miriam. And so she's probably 6 to 12 years old in age here. That's what we'd probably guess her age would be. 6 to 12. Keep that in mind. 6 to 12. So elementary school age. And what does she do? She either carries out this plan to approach Pharaoh's daughter, look her in the eye, 6 to 12 years old, and ask her, do you need a nurse? Or she comes up with it herself. Elementary school. And so kids, let me just chat with you real quick. Everyone in, in here who, who is a student, who's still in your, your parents' home, okay? So birth to, to 18, whatever it may be. Sometimes you, like I, I did, when you're younger, you think, I'll serve God someday. Like someday God will use me in, in some type of way, but that, that's for someday. Right now, I'm just trying to get through school and survive that and survive Fortnite, stay alive. That's what I'm focused on. Look at Miriam here. Look at how she serves the Lord. Six to 12 years old. And the first thing she does, it might not strike us, but what is the very first thing she does in, 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 in serving the Lord here? If you boil it down to the most simple thing, she watches her brother. She watches over him. She looks out for him. And she cares for him. So siblings, one of the greatest things you can do in serving God is to care for and love your siblings. Both with your words and your actions. But then on top of that, you find Miriam... Stepping outside of the popular view. Now, she is a Hebrew, I get that. But the, 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 the law of the land is Hebrew baby boy must die. And Miriam instead is willing to do what God wants her to do even while everyone else at her school might not. Kids, sometimes that's, that's got to be you. Sometimes you've got to, like, we are, we, are, we are outsiders. We're different. And that's good. But kids, students, don't put off being used by God to some future date. When you got it all together. That one, that day never comes. You never get it all together. Let the Lord work in you and through you right where you're at. Just do your part. Do your job. And trust the Lord with the rest. And then the third lady that we meet, third ordinary person here, is Pharaoh's daughter. And listen, I don't know like when, you know, this all happened. She finds Moses and Miriam's right there. Hey, you need a nurse? I don't know if she like is just, you know, buys that this is just happening like hook, line, and sinker, or if she puts two and two together and is like, oh, there's some connection here. You wouldn't just show up that fast. You have some connection to this baby. I, I don't know. Again, there's so much in this story we don't know. The Bible is not an encyclopedia of everything we want to know. It's what we need to know. But what we do know is that this is a beautiful picture of common grace. Somebody says, what's common grace? Common grace is just the grace that God gives to all people regardless. Now, specific saving grace is given to those who, you know, 
express faith in Christ. Common grace goes to everybody. And so we have a pagan, you know, false God-worshipping lady here who cares for a crying baby. She has pity on him. And that's no small thing. Like, don't discount that. I mean, thank God that people aren't as bad as they possibly could be. I mean, Pharaoh almost was, but not his daughter. We should thank God that people who don't even know him can still be, like, in an approximate way, even though not in an ultimate way, decent, honorable human beings. This is the gift of common grace. And so don't miss this. God's bending history through ordinary people, one of whom here is not even one of his people. God bends history through ordinary people doing ordinary things. Because what are they doing? Mothering, being a sibling, and then adopting, and therefore mothering. And so, all of you moms with little ones. I can imagine that sometimes you might think to yourself, making a difference in the world is something that I used to do, or something that I'll do 20 years from now. No. You don't, that's, that's accuser. No. You... You are making a difference for the Lord right where you're at in the thick of it. Right now. And so let the first one and a half chapters of Exodus be a super big encouragement to you because I, want, I don't want you to miss this. Like Exodus is the story of the Old Testament. It is, I mean, points straight to Jesus. Deliverance from slavery. Jesus, deliverance from slavery to sin. Passover crucifixion, like, it is, it is the thing all through the Bible that's looked back upon and talked about Jesus is the ultimate exodus. This story that is like the thing, first chapter and a half, everything that's happening in here is being carried out by women doing what? Caring for kids. Shifra and Pua, they won't kill him. Jochebed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter. And so don't think that, like, don't minimize motherhood. What you are doing matters in eternity, massively. God bends history through ordinary people. This is how providence works. But now as we get into kind of the second half of this chapter, starting in verse 11, we see not only does God bend history, but number two in your notes, how God bends his leaders through the school of hard knocks. That God bends his leaders through the school of hard knocks. And Moses is going to be a great example of this, but it didn't start out that way. It didn't start out hard knocks for him. Now, certainly, trauma around three or four when he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Certainly, that was, you know, something in his life. But after that, the next 36 years is silver spoon living. 
I mean, it's royal lifestyle, rich and famous lifestyle. Stephen's speech in Acts 7 tells us he was educated with the Egyptians, which means like he had the greatest education you could have of that day. He was trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, diplomacy. In other words, God worked providentially such that he was training Moses for Pharaoh's overthrow right under Pharaoh's nose. But then when he was 40, the school of hard knocks began. All of us who are 40, you can say the same thing. And the first hard knock was a choice of allegiance. Choose for whom you will serve this day. Like very much Joshua. And it's a choice we all face. Like, who are we most dedicated to? And so look at verse 11. One day, when Moses had grown up, and we know from Acts 7, he's 40 at this point, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew one of his people. Now, I don't think Moses, I don't think it's Charlton Heston who discovered this. I think he's known it all along. He lived with his mom and dad who's three or four years old. I don't think he didn't know. But he faces a choice. Like, who, who am I going to identify with? Now, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. It gives a little more detail on this. Chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. We used to have pew Bibles. You all remember those things, those days? Where you could touch things that other people had touched. And I could call out a page number and you could turn there. Lord willing, we'll get to there someday. But it is on page 1008 in my Bible, if it helps. Verse 23, by faith, this is what John read. It's in your bulletin. That might be easier for you to do. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, note that, choosing rather, to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ, and I'm sure he didn't even know the word, Christ is a Greek word, Messiah, Hebrew word. He probably didn't even know, he just knew there was one someday coming. Genesis 3, 15 and 16. But he considered the reproach of Christ of greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so what we're seeing here at this 40-year moment when he goes out to his people, it's like a salvific moment. Moses is purposely laying aside the lap of luxury to identify with God's oppressed and marginalized and persecuted but chosen people. Like a forerunner to Christ, he enters into their world so that he can bring salvation to them. And this is the first hard knock of God bending him to his will. Because think about all that he had to leave behind for 40 years. 
Now, some people might say, well, that was stupid of Moses. He probably could have done more good for the Hebrew people being in close proximity to the Pharaoh than fleeing the Pharaoh. But he identified it as sin. And so Moses forsook the fleeting pleasure of sin, even if it meant suffering disgrace for Christ. He chose the invisible kingdom of God over the visible kingdom of Egypt. What about you? Where is your allegiance first to? Is it like Moses with Israel? Bringing that to today? That's the church? Or is it with Egypt? A country? The world? Why gain the whole wide world and forfeit your soul? And so Moses chose God's people, painful as it was. Painful. And then the second hard knock he had to learn was that God's people don't fight God's battles with worldly weapons. This is the second hard knock he had to learn. God's people don't fight God's battles with worldly weapons. And so look back at Exodus 2 again, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, looked on their burden, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Slavery, right? One of his people. He looked this way and he looked that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And so notice here, Moses starts out like doing the right thing. He sees injustice. He sees beating. And so he starts to, you know, do something about it. So he starts good, but then he responds like the world. He responds like an Egyptian. He walked like an Egyptian. I promised people I would do it, so I get my payment. But that's why he, he responds. Starts with the right thing, motivation, sees this injustice, but then he responds just like he had always responded. He responded with worldly weapons. Folks, even when our motivation is good and right, godly ends don't justify ungodly means. God's concerned with means and ends. And so we don't fight fire with fire. We don't retaliate tit for tat. We don't treat others the way they treated us. We treat others the way we wish they would treat us. Even if that means we get stepped on. Because Jesus said to do this, and He's Lord. So we obey Him. We can't fight God's battles with worldly weapons. We're not just trying to win an argument. We're trying to win people for Christ. We're trying to live for Christ. But Moses does that. He 
fights with worldly weapons, and so he murders this guy. He sins against God. Not just like a, I mean, he murdered, like he murdered a dude. And he tries to cover it up, burying him in the sand. And then the next day he goes out again, and his people are fighting, and he rightly wants to inter, intervene, wants to help that stop. And one of the guys fires back at him, verse 14, who made you a prince and a judge over us? And it's a perfect question to confront Moses because Moses thought he already was the deliverer of Israel. He already thought he was. Acts chapter 7 tells us this. Verse 25, he supposed that his brothers would understand, this is Stephen's speech, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And you get down to verse 29. At this retort, when the guy's like, who are you to be judge and king over us? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. And so what Moses is trying to do here is he is trying to serve God without God. What about you and me? How many times do we walk into our place of business? Because every, everything we do, everything we do is service to God. We, we need to kind of push down that secular, sacred divide. Everything as a Christian we do is in service to God. He is our boss, Colossians 3. We are working as unto Him. How many times do we walk into our place of business, we walk into our family, we walk into a Bible study, we walk into worship here, we walk into a small group, what, whatever it is, how many times do we walk into those situations and we are seeking to serve God and we haven't even talked to God about it? We're seeking to serve God, but without God. If I asked for a show of hands, if anyone didn't raise their hand, then we would know you're a liar. We all do this at times. And we've got to learn. I mean, that, that's still fighting God's battles with worldly means. The world says, self, self, bootstraps, pull yourself up. We need God. We fight with Him. Moses had to learn this. We have to learn this. We can't fight God's battles with the world's weapons. But he also had to learn, though, though there's forgiveness, sin has consequences. And so he had to flee. And yet, a huge lesson for every single one of us. God still had a plan for Moses, which shows us that God uses failures failures as in people like me and you and failure as in moments in time when we fail because in God's providence he takes this horrible situation but it winds up redounding in a way that Moses gets to a place that God needs him to be in he gets him out into Midian because before Moses could lead the people out of Egypt, God knew that he had to get Egypt out of Moses. Everything he knew was Egypt. He's got to train him, teach him, 
bend him away from the worldly means towards how towards God's means. And he did this in an area east of Egypt called Midian. So look at verse 16 with me. <clears throat> now the priest of Midian, now Midianites like that, Abraham's their father. And sometimes in Scripture you see Midianites being friends of Israel. Sometimes you see them being foes of Israel. I think at this point in time they probably serve the one true God. This priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came and drew water. Remember Moses sat down by a well? That wasn't just like a little tack on. There's a reason for that. And these ladies come, daughters come to draw water and fill their troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up, remember he was sitting down, stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And so notice, he's already beginning to change. He's, because he sees injustice again. This is the third time he's seen injustice. This time it's not, you know, <clears throat> a slave beating or a master beating a slave. This time it's men abusing women. He sees this. He stands up. He does something about it, but he doesn't kill a guy this time. He stops short of that. Just uses enough force to get the point across. And then once he does that, after that, he actually does the watering, which we just read through. is not a big deal to us. But in the culture, like men did not do that. That was a woman's job. You didn't do that. Yet, he did. Moses stopped to serve. And by learning to serve, he was learning to lead because all of God's servants, all of God's leaders are servants. Verse 18. When they came home to their father, Ruel, if you've read Exodus, you'll probably know him by another name, Jethro. We'll get to that in a little while. Ruel. Whenever you see L on someone's name, you know that has something to do with God. Emmanuel. Like, anytime you see L, this is friend of God. When they came home to their father, Ruel, Jethro, he said, how is it that you came home so soon today? Apparently this like thing with the shepherds doing that must have been a habitual deal. <clears throat> and they said, and notice this, an Egyptian. Like, he looked like one. Walked, walked like one, I already told you that delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And so Jethro's like, well, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And so eventually Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And he's not talking about sojourning in Midian. He's talking about he was a sojourner in Egypt. That's not home. He's looking forward to the reward. That's home. And so God has Moses where he wants him. <clears throat> and according to Acts chapter 7, for the next 40 years, Moses is a husband and a father, and a shepherd. That's all he does. And it's through those ordinary means and the hard knocks that come with each one of those, husband, father, shepherd, that God bends and molds and crafts Moses 
into the leader that God wants him to be. God humbles him for the next 40 years. God teaches him patience for the next 40 years. God teaches him contentment regardless of circumstances for the next 40 years. And all of these are learned only through the school of hard knocks. So when you are in the midst of a hard season, don't forget that that is how God teaches us. That is so often how God trains us. And last week I talked a little bit about how sometimes it's the kindness of God to wound us in order to heal us. And gave the example of surgery. Where a doctor, you know, has to make an incision and you have to recover from that, right? But it's for a long-term good of healing you of something. And different, sometimes it is the kindness of God to, to sometimes make you walk right smack into that thing that you fear the most. That thing that causes you the most amount of anxiety. That thing that makes you say, well, where is God? And where God is is He is freeing you from your fear. And He's freeing you from your anxiety. How kind is that, that God would work in such a way to help free you from these things? But it only comes through the school of hard knocks. Which, just side note, when I was a kid, I thought it was like a literal university. I remember riding with my papa one time and. uh he was a president of Southern Cellulose in, in Chattanooga, uh, Kimcott, if, you, if you've ever been down there and seen any of that. Then you know, I, I was like, I'm going to just assume, I was like, well, Papa, where'd you go to college? He's like, son, I went to the school of hard knocks. And I remember thinking, oh, I'll have to look into that one. <laughs> and boy, have I. And boy, have you. And so whatever you're going through, don't think God is wasting your time. Wherever you're, like, even if, if your life isn't where you thought it would be, to that place, I didn't think I would still be in Nolensville. I didn't think I would still be working the same job that I've been working for X number. I didn't think I'd still be barely scraping by. I didn't think I'd still be driving this banger of a car. I didn't think I'd still have this struggle. But what in the world are you doing? God is doing way more than you know. We are limited. We can't see beyond our little finiteness. And He doesn't work on your timetable. He doesn't work on our expectations. But if you belong to Him, you can be sure that He is working in you and for you. For He is a compassionate Father who has compassion for His children. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. He's merciful and gracious. This is who God is. I just think if he had told Moses ahead of time what he wanted to do, hey Moses, I got great things for you. Here's how it's going to roll out. For 40 years, just grow up. And then for 40 years, go out in the wilderness. And then when you're 80, we'll talk. God, sometimes we have to wait. But that is not wasted time. And so this is the origin story of Moses. 
And who could write such a story other than God? Working through His hands of even silent sovereignty for the good of His people, for the praise of His glorious grace. And again, that is a warm blanket. Even when you can't see what you wish you could, you know that the Lord is still at work for good. Philippians 1.6 God will complete the good work He began in you in the day of Christ Jesus. It will happen. Stay in there. Stick with it. Do your part and trust the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You never quit on us. You never give up on us. Father, thank You that You forgive our iniquities, that as far as the East is from the West, so far have You removed our sin from us. And Lord, we hate hard knocks, but thank You for them. Thank You for how You shape and You move and You you work in ways that we would never dream because You are God and You are sovereign and You have power and You are good and You work all these things, God, that we can't see. Help us to trust. And help us to learn from the blood of Moses so we don't have to learn it ourselves through our own hard knocks. But God, bend us. Bend us to your will. Bend us to the people you want us to be. Change us through your word by the power of the Holy Spirit. Day by day by day by day by day. Help us, Lord, to just do what you've called us to do. And keep going. In Christ's name, amen.